look at several scriptures we look at this. We're going to look at the, this next question, Jesus our King. We've been looking at the Catechism. Um, I should say, by the way, if you want to catch up on all of these, uh, they are now being put on the website. Basically, they go on each week. So this Sunday's sermons, they'll be on the website this week sometime, uh, probably by Wednesday. But you can catch up on last week's. It's already up there. So let's go on to the the actual question itself. Uh, I will read the question and you can all say the answer. How does Christ fill the office of a king? Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Okay, Um, I want to show you a quote from a magazine I read this week, a Christian uh, magazine. And this was a lady who was giving her testimony about how she escaped, how she escaped from what she called fundamentalist Christianity. But um, again, it was in an evangelical magazine, and I found it a very, very interesting article and quite disturbing. This is what she says, part of it anyway. What did repent mean? What was sin? Did Jesus really die for me on the cross? I didn't ask him to. Did I owe him one? Was I really that awful? Or is there another way of looking at all these things through the eyes of human experience combined with a real desire to follow a God who does not condemn or punish, but who loves unconditionally without reservation? Now, I put that quote up there for a very simple reason, because it shows what happens in some ways when you read the woman's story, you can have a great deal of sympathy with her and a lot of the issues that she raises. But the trouble is, What she's doing, and what the magazine, to my mind, was encouraging her to do, and what many, many Christians do, is she was creating her own personal God, a Jesus who fitted where she was, what she wanted. In other words, as she thought about God, what really was important for her was, how does this work for me? How does this connect for me? And you, you therefore end up with, did Jesus really die for me on the cross? I didn't ask him to. That, that's, just, that's just a silly statement, amongst other things. And I think one of the problems that we have is how we think about God is often tied up with how we think about ourselves. And that's one of the great advantages, first of all, in teaching through the Bible, but also in trying to put things in a theological way, which theology is just the study of God, and trying to put it kind of systematically, put it together as the catechism does, so that it helps us in our understanding, so that what we think about God comes more from His Word, rather than just from what we would want Him to be. And the reason I say all of that is, when I was thinking about Jesus as the office of a king, how is Jesus a king? I would have gone, well, he's a king and we, you know, you submit to a king and you bow to a king and so on. But there's another nuance in that in the Bible. There's another aspect of that in the Bible, which as I looked at it, I found really encouraging. And again, it was just an example of the Bible sometimes approaches things in a way that you and I maybe do not expect. So let's look at this, uh, this idea of Christ being our king and what it means. And we'll go 
first of all, go to the next one, to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. Revelation 19 verse 16. And that says this. Well, we'll read from verse 15. Out of his mouth, this is Jesus, of course, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the first part of that is very straightforward. Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a famous story told of a king, King James I and Sixth, of uh, a minister who went in to see him, and the king was having an argument with him because he didn't like, basically, he didn't like Presbyterianisms, Presbyterians. And uh, he talked about how he was king and that they had to submit to him. And this minister responded, there are two kingdoms. In one of these kingdoms, you are king. And in the other, Christ Jesus is king. And you are but a silly vassal. Now, silly didn't mean what it means nowadays. It just meant simple. You are just a, a, an ordinary subject of that kingdom. And that was very, very hard for rulers to take. It's true of rulers today. It's true of Gordon Brown, of Obama, of Sarkozy, uh, all the other, Putin, and so on. All those who govern us are subject to Christ Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's go on to Isaiah, or go back to Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. If someone's found it, you're welcome to read it. Anna, you looked. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Could you read it, please? Okay. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He lives in a high and holy place, but also with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. In other words, when we recognize him as Lord, when we call him Lord. Let's go back to Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. In fact, I'll, I'll read from verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then the last one to look to, by the way, that's true whether they recognize him as that or not. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. And I'll also look for a volunteer to read that. So, Chris, thank you. But to that the Son, he said, 
It's interesting about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last. Jesus is called God. Now, those are just four verses that are more or less picked at random. There are dozens and dozens of, of verses in the Scripture which tell us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It is a crucial and vital teaching of the Scriptures, and it really is very, very difficult to see how anyone could say that they were a Christian who believed the Bible and who didn't acknowledge the whole idea of the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go on to the next one, please. How does, how is Christ king of his people? How does he rule his people? What does it mean when we say that Jesus is king and uh, all that goes along with that? Well, first of all, it means very simply that, well, he rules us in our lives. And that is primarily within. When we say Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, some Christians have misunderstood that. And what they've done is that they have taught that the church or God's people or the saints or however you want to call it, that we should be running the world. In other words, they say, well, if Tony Ben or Tony Ben, Tony Ben, that's what I'm going for. If I was going to say Tony Blair, it's not even Tony Blair. If Gordon Brown or um, Obama or President Obama or any of the others or our local city councillors, some Christians would say, well, we should be going telling them, you should be doing what Jesus says and God has given us a, 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 a political kingdom and this is how it should be. It's what's called a theocracy. But that's not really what the Bible teaches because it talks, first of all, about the rule of King Jesus in our hearts. If we say that Jesus is Lord, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the, by the Holy Spirit. If we say that Jesus is Lord, if we believe that, then that's what makes you a Christian. Now, there are three ways, I think, I've put down that he, he rules. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And first of all, if someone can find it and tell us what the, the verse, the, the page number is, because First Peter, 1217. Okay, and would someone like to read it actually? Chris, you're doing very well, so you might as well carry on. Verses 13, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay, and the reason for saying that and putting that verse in there about the kingship of Jesus is this. Obviously, if he's a king, he gives laws, he rules, and if we are his subjects, we obey him. As obedient children, we are sons and daughters of the king, but we still seek to obey him. Uh, there are disobedient children, none of them here, I'm sure, 
But there are disobedient children, and it's just horrendous when you get a child who just lives within a home, takes all the advantages of that home, and yet doesn't go along with the rules of that home. Some people don't like the idea of Jesus as king because it means that we have to obey him. We are not autonomous. We do not just make things up. We call Jesus Lord. And that means sometimes we do things that by instinct or by nature we would not like to do. I was thinking about this because um, there are things in the Bible, for example, that I find quite hard emotionally. And if I was to do it, it wouldn't be what I would put in there. But I would... I, I willingly and gladly submit to it because what do I know? God is king. God is the Lord. And let me, I'm just going to give you an example of this. And the one I can think of most of all is just simply this. Um, because I probably get into more trouble about this one than anything else. I'm occasionally asked, what do you believe? Or I'm very often asked, what do you believe about the role of women in the church? It's just such a poison chalice question. And I, I go, oh, right, where do we begin? It boils down to, for me, as a very, very straightforward thing that I think that there is a, um, a lot of prejudice against women. I think that there's a lot of things that are wrong, and even within the church. And I think sometimes... There are people who say, oh, women can't do this and can't do that, and they're wrong. You know, I think, for example, an example would be uh, women praying and so on. There's, I can't see anything in the scriptures that would forbid that, and indeed, see the very opposite, encouraging that. But then the trouble comes, you see, when it comes to the whole question of, would you have women elders and ministers? And the answer to that is no, and it's nothing to do. People get really wound up and really upset about that. It's just I can't get around the fact that the scripture teaches that that is not right. Whatever the culture teaches and whatever the rights and wrongs of things that are wrong, and I, I believe that men and women are equal and so on, that's what the Lord has said in his word. Whether I understand it, whether I, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that I would say, well, maybe that was just cultural, whatever, but I just can't get around and I shouldn't try and get around what God says in his word. So I submit to his word. That's one example. There may be other examples of things as well where I look and I say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't get this. But I don't try and change the Bible so that it suits me. We call Jesus Lord. And what that means is it doesn't mean that you just obey the commandments that you understand or you just obey the commandments that you like. It wouldn't be much, those of you who are parents, you wouldn't really like it if your children said, yeah, sure, mom, dad, I'll do what you say, providing I agree with it. That's a recipe for anarchy in any home. And that means that at times you're going to come to the Bible, you're going to read the Bible, and there are parts of it that are distinctly uncomfortable, that just don't fit with where you are at. They don't fit you. Like uh, the, the quote I read at the beginning was a woman who had struggled with a whole range of different issues in her life and she couldn't accept a God who did not condemn, who, who, uh, a God who condemns or punishes. But the God of the Bible is a God who does condemn and he does punish because he hates injustice and he hates wrong and he hates evil and his eyes are purer than to look upon iniquity. 
And you can't kind of just say, well, I don't like that, or that doesn't fit, or that just makes me feel bad because of my experience. We have, we have to come and say, Lord, there's a, really got to be an element of humility which says, I don't understand this. I don't really get it. It's not me. But then that's right. It's not me. We are not autonomous. We call Jesus Lord. Okay. The second way that he rules us is by love. Uh, Galatians 2.20. I'll just cite that. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Psalm 110 and verse 3 says, I'm going to quote from the authorized version, the King James Version, because I like it. It's a willing people in thy day of power will come to thee. It's saying that God is a king whom we obey, but he's a king whom we obey as, as obedient children. We obey out of love. Again, coming back to parts of the Bible or different things, where we say, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. No, we obey it, not because we're afraid of God, but because we love him. He rules his people by love. His people are a willing people. Because he loves us, we love him. He is full of grace and mercy. And then um, by liberty, by law, by love, by liberty. Could someone find Psalm 3, please, and verse 3? Any volunteers? Yep, page 544. You read it, please, Alan. You are a shield around me, O Lord. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. Exodus 19 and verse 4. That says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I said by liberty here because this is what is happening. God rules us. We obey him. He rules us by love. We love him. And I'm saying by liberty because what he does is he shields us and he carries us. If you've seen the, the, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings or if you've read the book, at the end, at the very last one when everything's all been done, these massive eagles come and pick up Frodo and the other guy. I've forgotten his name just now. But um, Who's it? Sam. Is it? You got it, didn't you? What was his name? Sam, Frodo and Sam, okay. Frodo and Sam, pick up Frodo and Sam and just carries them away. Uh, there's this sense of power and majesty and it's very, very well done and of safety and security. Well, that's the idea here in Psalm 3. He's a shield and he carries us as on eagle's wings in Exodus 19 and verse and what that means is we have liberty. If Jesus is our king, sometimes we have this, again, this idea, no, I don't want someone to be my king. I want to be king of my own life. I want to run things myself. And here's the irony. If you want to run things yourself, you put chains on yourself. But if you acknowledge Jesus as king, you are set free. You have set my heart at liberty. Stephen, let's go on to the next one. When do we experience Christ's kingship? This is a quote from uh, the old Puritan Thomas Watson. The king delivers his people when their hearts are most humble, when their prayers are most fervent, 
when their faith is strongest, when their forces are weakest, when their enemies are highest, then is the usual time that Christ puts forth his kingly power for their deliverance. In other words, sometimes we don't experience the kingship of Jesus Christ because we are proud, because we don't pray, because our faith is so weak, because we think we are strong, because we have no enemies. And we don't, why, what, why do we need a king for? But here, what Watson is saying I think is true. That's when we humbly bow before Christ as king, when we pray to him, when our faith in him and not in ourselves is strongest, when we feel weakest, when our enemies are raging against us, that's usually when we experience and know the kingship of Christ. Okay, the next one, please. This is the um, second part of the kingship. Now, the first part of the kingship, I, I would have suspected that was there. I knew it was kind of there. This I kind of knew, but I didn't realize just how strong it is. And the catechism puts it very wisely in saying that he, he makes us his willing subjects, he rules us, and he defends us, and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Let's just go through these. Second Chronicles 14 and verse 11. Second Chronicles 14 11. You'll see. Would someone like to read that, please? Any volunteers? All right, pick on someone. John, thank you. Now, this is really important because we have this idea of kingship of yeah, we bow down before Jesus as king and so on and we accept that and that's what we should be doing and so on. We don't see that the other side of that is that if Jesus is our king, he is fighting for us. He is our champion. There's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you and in your name. We have come against this vast army. Jesus is our king because he defeats his and our enemies. Psalm 110 verse 1 says that he will make his enemies his footstools. Or Exodus. Let's just turn over to Exodus 15 and verse 3. This is the song of Moses and of Miriam. And it just says simply, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. This is not, I don't want a God who doesn't condemn or punish. I, don't want, I want a God who's going to be nice. I want a God who's, no, actually, I want a God who's going to defend me. I want a God who's going to protect me. I want a God who's going to stop injustice or punish injustice. I don't want a God who is going to let people away with the most dreadful of sin. Revelation 6 and verse 2 going right to the, almost to the end of the Bible. Revelation 6 verse 2 says this. Come, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. 
The quote there is from a man called Myconius writing in a letter to John Calvin, and he says this, I am glad that Christ reigns, else I should have despaired. You see, when Jesus is your king and you acknowledge that he reigns, it changes the perspective on everything. The devil doesn't reign. The church may have been a dreadful mess, but Christ still reigns. The country may be in an awful mess, but Christ still reigns. Sometimes it's a very, very difficult teaching and doctrine to believe, but it is very important. Let's go on to the next one, Stephen. So what's the use of all this? I think the use of it, I'm going to give it in, in three parts. The first is if we recognize that Christ is king and that he rules over his people, and if we recognize that Christ defeats his and our enemies, the use of it is seen in this. First of all, we serve him. To serve Jesus Christ is an honor and a privilege. Now, generally, we, we, we're not growing up in a culture of service. We're growing up in a culture where people like the idea that we are king. But it's so much more liberating to be able to see that Christ is so great and so glorious and so wonderful and so powerful that to serve him is far better than if we ruled the world. What's that song, if I ruled the world? You know, you hear it all the time. Well, my one-liner in that song is simply, if I ruled the world, what a mess the place would be. But Christ is king, and, and it's an honor and a privilege to serve him. We are a royal nation. We are servants and brothers and sisters of the king. We can speak to him, and he can deliver us. It's like... I want to go to God and I want to be able to say to God, look, I've got this problem, I've got that difficulty, I've got this sinful tendency and so on. And, and I can never defeat it on my own. I can never defeat my own indwelling sin. And if I can't even defeat my own sin, what am I going to do with other people's? But Christ delivers us. He rules over us. And to acknowledge Christ as Lord is such a powerful, powerful thing to be able to do. And it, it, it enables us to serve him. Now that means that this week, those who are going out to the camp are going to serve Jesus Christ. It's not about ourselves. But it's not just in that situation. It's in other situations. We are looking for ways that we can serve Christ. There was a... a a series of songs by the Maranatha singers. And I remember one of them thinking it was awful. It was just so twee. It was just dreadful. But it went along the lines. One of the lines I remember was, doing the dishes, Lord, doing the dishes, living for your glory, doing the dishes. And I thought, I'm not singing that. It was just... And yet, strangely, it's true. It's true. If you can have the attitude... You know, you're asked to go and do dishes and you think, oh, no. Why is it always me? Why is it, you know, why doesn't my brother or my sister do it? And that means in your own family or it means in the church. Why am I the one who's doing this? Why am I the one who's stacking the chairs? Why am I the one who's got to do this? Why am I? Why, why me? Why me? Why me? If we have that attitude, I, I don't think we've got this real concept of, of service and serving 
Christ the King. We tend to think of service. Oh yeah, I'll be a mighty warrior for God. And you get people talking like that about being mighty warriors for God. A mighty warrior for God is cheerfully being able to serve Christ in whatever situation he puts you. And if you happen to be in Sudan in 40 degrees of heat with no toilets and running water and five kids, six kids, I can't remember how many kids they've got, you know, you just, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to break down and just go, oh, this is just awful. It's just a nightmare. And it is a nightmare in some ways. But if you have the attitude, well, no, we're here to serve. We're serving Christ. As I said this morning, I'm reading the Apology of Justin Martyr, and he, and he, just, he writes in that. He says, look, you can kill me if you want to. I'm going to come to you, and you can kill me. The emperor, he says that to him. I expect you, you to kill me almost. But it doesn't matter. He said, we don't care. He said, as Christians, we used to murder. Now we give our lives. I think that... Um, we need to get that attitude right in the smallest of things so that we can do it in the largest of things. The privilege is we serve Christ as King. We submit to Christ. And that is, again, so important. I've, I've stressed it a bit already, so I'll not say much about it, except to say that any one of us here who is a Christian, yes, we are to submit to one another out of love for Jesus. And you get bits of the Bible like wives submit to your husbands. What does that mean? And so on. People get all kind of wound up about these things. But in one sense, the hardest and the simplest thing to do is to submit to Christ. We always submit to Christ first. Now, if Christ was evil, if Christ was capricious, if Christ was some kind of, of twisted deity, as, as many of the ancients believed about their particular gods, that would be awful. But as the Christ of the Bible, the glorious Lamb of God, it is a wonderful thing to be able to submit to him. Temperamentally and psychologically, that's quite difficult for me. I, I hate the, the kind of bowing the knee to other people. You know, the General Assembly, when the, the Queen's representative comes in and everyone bows, I don't bow. I just I find it just absurd. And I find those kind of things, I just, oh, no. And there's something, maybe it's pride, maybe it's wrong. I just don't like the idea of bowing to anybody except Jesus Christ. To bow before the living God. And then it's not just bowing. It's being contrite before him and submitting to him. Let me say that for many of us as Christians... If we had an attitude of willing and glad submission, our lives would be so much freer. And then the third thing is just simply this. We serve him, we submit to him, and we celebrate Christ as king. That's what is happening in Revelation 4 and 5 when Bev read that. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I can remember when uh, Charles and Diana got married. And I remember all the celebrations that people had. I don't remember when the queen was, I was going to say ordained to the throne or whatever it was, inducted to the throne. I've got these words in my head. Uh, when she was coronated, something like that. But I don't remember that, but I remember Diane Charles and um, I remember my father being given a day off work so that he could celebrate it and everything. It just seems kind of daft now. 
seems kind of pathetic, kind of silly in some ways. The way it all turned out and everything that was involved. And yet, we understand, we, we, we celebrate, maybe you're a royalist and you'll celebrate royalty or maybe you know, you're a nationalist and you'll celebrate when Scotland becomes independent and we have King Alec or whatever. Maybe you're a, um, you know, sorry for that, but maybe you're, you know, there are things that we celebrate. You're a football fan, you celebrate your team winning something. The Christian always has a cause and a reason for celebration that is far greater than any of the reasons that anyone in this world can give. And it's that no matter what happens, Jesus reigns. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's why we worship him. Let's pray.